I'd like you to open your Bible to Ephesians. We'll begin in chapter 4. I want to do a series of teachings on growing into full stature. That's a wonderful Bible theme. It's really what we're all about. It's probably the major reason that he's gathered us together in one place as a body of believers is not only that we can worship him in fellowship with each other, but that we can be instructed. Not entertained with some clever sermon, but instructed, taught how to live a life that exists outside the doors of this place in the real world out there where you live and work. And we all know that in Ephesians 4, especially the verses I want to look at, verses 13 through 15, these are verses that we will be reading for a long, long time yet. Because they do talk about full stature. Full stature has to do with changing. God doesn't save you to leave you as you were. When he saved you, he saved you as you were. But his design, his plan for your life is to change you from glory to glory to glory. So that in the end, you're not the same person that you used to be. If we're walking in newness of life, we need to know what that life is. We can't walk in what we don't know. Somebody has to inform me or teach me. But there is a goal that God has for each one of us, whoever we are. There is a goal, something that we should aspire to, to be like. And Paul tells us here in these writings. Now remember verse 12 said, for the perfecting of the saints. That's you and me. Perfecting means, in this word, to put in right order, to put together, to restore, to mend, as it's used in other places in the Bible. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministering, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." We could spend, as probably have through the years, we could spend a couple of weeks or a couple of months just on what all is in that verse of Scripture. If you're a young preacher here tonight and you're working on sermons, you could get a bunch of good ones right here in this section of Scripture. Till we all come, it means until we as a body of believers together reach a certain place, the kind of activity that God has assigned us to be taking place is growing, perfecting of the saints, putting us together, doing things with us so that in the end, we're not the kind of people we used to be. We have been changed. And the change is, again, mentioned in verse 13, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It takes knowledge to do that. Again, you cannot be changed into something if you don't know what that something is. Or to say we're to be like Christ is easy to say. That's just preachy word. That's just religious words. We're going to be like Jesus. Well, somebody has to tell you what Jesus was like. Well, you can read it, you say. You can read in the Bible what he was like. Yes, you can. But it's teaching and instructing that God uses to bring information to your heart that is designed to convict you of things you need to be like. Without conviction, you will remain basically as you were. Nothing will ever change. There needs to be the stirring of the heart, the convicting of the soul, something that 
compels you to deal with something in your life. Because without that, we won't grow. We'll become complacent religious people. We'll just occupy a pew and go through the motions and enjoy the service. And we'll just do what we've done, and it won't have much of a meaning on us. And 30 years later, we're the same person then as we were 30 years before. Nothing's changed. That's not what God is doing. Now, we're not perfect people. You're not looking at one. I'm not looking at perfect people. But I'm looking at, and you're looking at, the choice that God made. See, I didn't choose him. He chose me. You didn't choose him. He chose you. And not only did he choose you, but he has ordained you. There is a direction he has for us individually in our life, and there is a direction he has for us corporately as a body of believers. In verse 14, he said, this growth that we're going to go through is going to deliver us from being deceived, from being misled, that we henceforth be no longer like children that are tossed this way and that way by every kind of teaching that comes along. But he said, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, which is what you have to do, may grow up into him in all things, which is ahead, even Christ. Growing up, growing unto his fullness. That's what we're talking about. This is what God wants. Now in chapter two, he said it like this, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. Verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Has made us sit together in Christ Jesus. Now, is this a divine fact? Say yes. This is an established, unchanging truth. In this case, it's a divine or God-given, God-centered truth which cannot change. The word of God shall abide forever. Therefore, what you just read is eternally true. You cannot make it true by believing it because it's true whether you believe it or not. It's true because God said it. And it says, among other things, throughout the New Testament, that in Christ, with Christ, by Christ, for Christ, all through the Bible, it describes to us what we can do, what belongs to us, what we can do, what should be going on in our lives. Let me draw a couple of squares on the board up here and use that tonight. Now, what verse was it where he said that we're seated in heavenly places? Say verse 6. Okay, we are seated where? How can you be seated in heavenly places and be here in this room? Well, it's a spiritual thing, isn't it? It's talking about while you are living and breathing in this world, you are still on this earth. But spiritually speaking, in the mind of God, as God wants you to see it, you are seated with him in heavenly places. Now, we're going to call this our position, P-O-S-I-T-I-O-N. Our heavenly position, our place in heaven with Christ. As he is, so are we in this world. If he can, we can too. When he died on the cross, Romans 6 says, when he died, I died. Because I am hid with Christ in God. 
when he was raised from the dead, I too was raised from the dead. And as he lives, so I live. As he is, so am I. Now, these are truths. A lot of times it's hard to imagine this because we're so used to what we're doing and where we live that these are just Bible words that don't have a lot of impact in our life. But we got to start here tonight that this is our heavenly position. This is who we are and where we are in Christ. As he said again, you are seated in heavenly places. He made us alive together with him, verse 5, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is where we are. Remember Paul wrote this, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he says, if any man be in Christ, what is he? He's a new creature. That is, he's a new creation. Something has been brought forth that was not before. He's new. You still have the same old brain. You still have the same old hangups until they get dealt with. You still got the same body and face. You haven't changed outwardly. The change is spiritual. You're brand new in a place you were dead. Now you're alive. And the life that you have is hid with Christ in God. And boy, the Bible describes the potential that we have. What belongs to us? Not many believe it, but it's throughout the New Testament. It's throughout the Bible. But again, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. We mentioned this the other day in Acts 17, 28. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. That's Acts 17, 28. For in him, Christ, we live and we move, and we have our being. Well, this is where we are right here. We could call this our being, but I'm going to put this to condition. Our, O-U-R, our condition on this earth. This is where we are and what we are tonight, right now, at this time in our life. Some are more advanced than others. Some are not trying. Some are trying. Some are slow. Some are fast. Some are eager. Some are not. Some are zealous, and, and some are satisfied. But this is where we are. And the truth that God gives us to change us will never change us unless we realize that where we are is not where we should be. There's never a time he leaves you alone. If God ever leaves you alone, it's a fatal silence that you have because when God gives you up to your passions, he's through dealing with your life. You'll live until your appointed time, but... No more spiritual inspiration in your life. Nothing else is going to happen. Not much is going to come to pass in your life. But these eternal truths that we have about our position are supposed to affect the condition that you're in. Your condition should reflect, to some degree, your heavenly position. There was a time, for example, you didn't know how to fight the good fight of faith. And whatever came along, you didn't know it was the devil. Nobody ever taught you. You just kind of yielded to everything that happened, and you were overcome and overwhelmed. You'd learn to live with it. You did what everybody else did. You hope you didn't get it, and hope you could live a long life, and you hope, you hope, you hope, you hope, you hope. And in case you didn't, you got insurance for this, insurance for that. You got all these things because you really don't expect anything but this to happen, and you're living like it's going to happen. They give you the health policy. There's all these conditions on the health policy, and at the bottom, the insurance company says, we bet you make it, and you sign, so I bet I don't. And you get it 
because that's the way it was, and it shouldn't be, but that's the way it is with so many people. That's the condition that we're in. It hasn't been affected by what the Scripture says about who you are in Christ. Because even though we've heard that, nothing has really changed. We're still struggling with a lot of things in some unchrist-like condition that we shouldn't be struggling with. We all have our problems. I don't think God designed our living in this world to be an easy life. He said we're constantly going to be harassed and troubles come and confront you, difficult times come. You're going to have to pay the price that you're going to be hated eventually. It's not easy. Peter wrote, it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved. So there is a struggle in this life. But you're not left alone in this life without hope. I'm not talking about going to heaven when you die. I'm talking about while we live. For in him we live and we move. That's living. And we have our being, our existence. It's all in Jesus. And if it really does mean that as he is, so are we, or if it really does mean I can do all things through Christ who what? Who strengthens me. If he really did command me to be strong in the Lord in Ephesians 6.10, then I should be. But I'll never know that I should be until I recognize I'm not. Are you with me? So we're talking about truth and change and the sad condition of so many people who never get any light. I'm not talking about bad people or people that are inferior to you. I'm not a spirit anybody. I'm the lowest of all of them. I know where I came from. I know what I was like. And as Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I don't think he was. I think I was. But regardless, we won't argue over who's the proudest sinner. But we'll say this, that Hosea said it like this. One of those other verses that you're well acquainted with. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. He said, for my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Isaiah 5, chapter 5, verse 13 says, My people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. They don't know any better. My ancestor didn't know any better. My daddy was a Catholic his whole life. My brother was a Catholic. They didn't know any better. There was no such thing as a teaching ministry in the church. Not like we know what teaching is. They didn't have that. They subscribed to a system, like most religious people do. You subscribe to a system, you learn the basics of it, you fit into it, and you cooperate with it until the day you die. You couldn't tell people in it that there's a better way of doing things because they don't want a better way. They like it the way they got it. Therefore, we have on every corner. We've got the Methodists, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, the Pentecostals, the Church of God, and the Episcopal. We got them all. Everybody has a way, a system. The system is not designed to change your life, but to give you something to fit in with. It's a system that really seems to be designed to give you something in this world and in this life to kind of help you through this life. I think it's a lot bigger than that what God gives us. To be conformed. Remember that in Romans 8? Whom he did foreknow them, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Is that possible? Is it really possible? 
that whom God did foreknow, he did also predetermine that those that he foreknew would be conformed to the image of his son, that they're going to be like him, they're going to love like him. Don't we have his faith? Didn't he give us the faith of Christ? He did. We're going to believe. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. That we can no longer sit back and just, well, Jesus could do anything. He said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. When he came to the upper room after his resurrection, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now he said, you go with my authority and you do what I did. And the church for what, a couple of centuries has had its arms folded and with the natural mind trained by this world, formed by this world and functioning by this world says, well, how can that be? How can that be? Natural man has forever been trying to take the miracles of the Bible and make them natural. Well, the Jordan opened up because the planets were in line with each other. The planets all got lined up one day and the atmospheric pressure caused, uh, I don't know enough big word, but caused the uh, configurations of the planets and all that, caused the sea right at that little point on this earth to open up and that's how it worked. They, they can't accept the fact that it's divine and spiritual. Even Bible scholars say, well, now in this book, Paul was probably referring, you know, he had this problem. With, Wait a minute, this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He used the pen of man. But it's inspired by God. It says what God wants us to know. Folks are going to great extremes to write books and do things to try and prove that evolution is wrong and that biblical creation is right. I don't need proof. I enjoy the efforts of man, but I don't need that to believe in the Bible. I believe in the Bible because I want to. You couldn't talk me out of it if you tried. I am so one-track minded. Somebody said to me years ago, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. So be it. May that be true. But I don't need proof of biblical accounts. You don't have to find the ark for me to say, oh, there really was an ark. I believe it anyway. Or somebody might have said, I think they know where the ark of the covenant is. I doubt that. Indiana Jones can't find it. And I'll tell you what, it's in heaven. As far as I'm concerned, it's one piece of furniture that was evacuated from this earth and taken to heaven. The book of Revelation says, I saw the ark in heaven. But anyway, that's another story. We get all of these accounts and all of these things in the Bible to tell us what we ought to believe. And yet, mankind is forever suppressing our spiritual desires and zeal to try to make everything right that can be proven naturally. You know, I believe it if I see it. I believe it if it makes sense. We can't grow like that. If everything in the book is natural, it was a natural book written by natural men with natural explanations. How do you explain naturally the Red Sea? Allow me for a moment. Well, it was actually the reed sea, somebody said, a little reed sea. You know, a little water with a little splashy water about that deep. I love this part. 
Because the greater miracle was that while the water was only that deep, the little horses were about an eighth of an inch high, and they come right, get, 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 and they hit that little creek, and they all died. <laughs> Somebody said, you're crazy. No, I ain't either. If you're going to try to make a childish impression on me with the Reed Sea being a little creek, then no little horses and riders that plunged in the sea were little bitties. They looked like ants. Well, it happened the way God said it. You say, well, you can't prove it. I don't have to prove that. I believe that. See, I don't care what condition we're in down here. I don't care what we're going through down here. For every situation, for every problem, for every obstacle, there's a divine solution. Now, you may not know what it is. That doesn't make it not so. It's not so because you don't see it. It's in the Bible. You've got to go look for it. You've got to find it and bring it out yourself. God doesn't want us to struggle down here all the time telling him what we can't do, telling each other what we can't do, what we're afraid of, what isn't going to work for me. You can't do that. Because when God put us on this earth, again, he put us here for a reason. And as I said a while ago in Romans 8, 29, he knew you a long, long time ago before you were ever born. And when your time in life came and he put you on this earth, there was a day while you're on this earth that he saved you. And when he saved you and you were born again, he locked into you and is willing to open up to you his good treasures in heaven and lead you from darkness to light. But like Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Most of the church has all the knowledge it wants and way more. They got enough to know how to work something, to make something work. It's like a little business, and it works, and it fits in their lifestyle, and that's all they want. And as far as growing is concerned, they will tell you quickly, well, I'm embarrassed. I don't know that much about the Bible. I don't know much about Scripture. But if there's one thing we should all know something about, it's the Bible. Doesn't it still say to study, to show yourself? Uh, something like that still in the Bible, approved unto God, a workman? Are you still in Ephesians 2? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That's part of his plan for us. Listen, all of us, if we get satisfied with a little bit, if we just had a little taste if you were in this world and you never had a, maybe you wouldn't like this, but you never had a really good, real ice cream, well-made chocolate milkshake. If you never tasted one, you wouldn't miss it. But if somebody gave you a spoonful, I would just say, how about some more? That's the way you're made, naturally. Naturally, that's the way you are. Once you have been aroused to, to find something that really satisfies you, you want more. If you ever ate a good meal at a certain restaurant, you will go back. You might save your money, but you will go back. You're made like that. There's this natural desire for more of something good. Now, spiritually, you're made like that. If you ever taste and see that the Lord is good, you will want more of it. But if you talked out of the goodness of it, that there's just naturally not much more than what you see. That's as far as you go. As I said the other day, somebody will talk you out of everything in the Bible. 
God could heal today. And again, the natural man goes to great lengths, like in James 5, talks about anointing with oil. One of them wrote, said, well, oil had medicinal properties. No, it doesn't either. You could take you a bath in oil tonight, and you still wouldn't feel good in the morning. You could fill your swimming pool if you had enough money. Fill your swimming pool full of oil and dive in and do a backstroke across there. You still won't feel any better. Oil doesn't heal. It's faith that heals. Oil is symbolic. It's not what heals any more than water washes away sins. It's symbolic. It's part of what we do because we see the symbolism in it and we ask ourselves in expectation that when we do this, these are the results because that's what he said. This is where I am. This is where truth comes from. My heavenly position can never change because of my earthly condition, but my earthly condition can never change my heavenly position. One will change the other, but one cannot change the other one. It is forever established and settled in heaven. The word of God will never vanish, never pass away, never fade, never falter. It is forever settled in heaven. Now, this walk in this world is a rocky walk. Again, it was difficult in a lot of ways for a lot of people. You got those days you got to deal with stuff. If you're married, you know what I mean. And you got this, you got that. Money, problems, temporary setbacks here, there, neighbor next door, gun didn't go off when the big buck came, whatever it was, or the big fish got off. There's all kinds of things that people get tore up about. But let me tell you something. For every situation you face in this life, there is a promise from your father that belongs to you. Jesus didn't do everything he did so he could get something. Though he were rich, remember this verse in 2 Corinthians 9? Though he were rich, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might be what? As he was and as he is, rich. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It's either 8, 9 or 9, 8. We'll never grow. We'll never progress. We'll never begin to be the kind of people that God wants us to be until divine truths sink into our heart. I have to come here tonight of course, I'm doing the talking, but I pray for myself too. I pray that I'll hear a thing because I'm always saying something I wasn't thinking about. We have to hear what he is saying. We have to come with a hunger. We have to hunger and thirst after righteousness and so forth. Colossians 3.1, you can find that. It's just a couple of books to the right. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, If you then be risen with Christ, what are we supposed to do? What's the command here? It's not a suggestion. We don't vote on this. If you are risen with Christ, what should you then do? Seek those things where? Which are above. Does he say anything about your life is dead and you're hid with Christ? Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God? Is that where you're seated? It's one thing to acknowledge that the scripture says you're seated there and to say, I'm seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The teacher comes along and he says, what is there also? What is there? When you are there with Christ, what else is there? And you say, what do you mean? Well, what goes with this? Is it a package deal? Because a lot of religion tells you that you won't get it until you get there. 
You can't have any of the blessings in life on this earth. You only get all of that when you get there. Now, if you teach me that, I'll quit seeking. If you tell me that all these 8,000 promises in the Bible will not be fulfilled until I get to heaven, and the only guarantee in this life is, for by grace through faith are you saved, and that's all there is, and one day you'll be well, and one day, one day, one day, one day over yonder on the other side, when you tell me that, and that's all there is to it, I quit seeking God. I start being religious. I just attend the meetings. I sit there. I have no reason to expect anything to happen. I've been talked out of it. It's not going to work for me. How many denominational churches have hospitals now? Because they don't believe the message anymore. This holy old-time message that by his stripes you were what? They've been talked out of that so much. That's been argued and debated and ousted so much. This anointing with all things, that was for another culture in another day. The best we can do today is the medical industry. That's all some people have. That's all they ever expect. That's it. The one preaching, that's all he's got too. He was talked out of it in seminary or by his parents or somebody else. And they were talked out of it. And down through the centuries, we've been talked out of it. Can we sit here in some kind of a hopeless, stupid, religious people? Well, let's build something. Let's build something. Let's do something. Well, let's just get together and grow. Who's ever said that? Let's get together and grow. What tree did you get out of? Grow. Nobody can see us growing, but they can see us building. As we go through the town on our convertible, we can wave at all of them. See, look what we did. But that quiet working of the word of God, God being at work in you, stirring you up, dealing with your complacency. Let me tell you what causes growth. What causes people to be aroused out of a deadness and a complacency is need. Remember the old hymn we used to sing in church? I need thee every hour. Well, the poor soul, the Laodicean church didn't need him. Look what we got. Look what we did. Look what we've got. We need nothing. Remember what Jesus said? You're miserable. You're wretched. You're blind. And you're naked. You got nothing. Looks good. But there's nothing here in the heart. Remember the fig tree that Jesus cursed? Mark 11, remember that day he walked up the fig tree and he came up to it? It was a time of figs. And he looked at it and it was a, a religious tree. It was a man-made tree. He looked in there for this and he saw nothing but formality. And what did he say to it? He cursed it. Well, he cursed it. What was a fig tree put on this earth to do? To make shade. No. What does the fig tree put on this earth to do? To provide a place for nesting birds. No. What was a fig tree put on this earth to do? <laughs> to make figs. Who are the figs for? Us. We're the figs. Well, we don't believe right now in fig. Okay, so you're not a fig believer. <laughs> so he cursed the tree. He cursed the tree. It had the appearance of all the right stuff, but there was nothing there. You have to see your need. There has to be a need in your life. 
to grow. This is how it works. Turn 2 Corinthians 3, that old familiar friend of yours over in chapter 3. Verse 17 says, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 said, but we all with unveiled face, because he's been talking about the Jewish people, and it's true today, I've been there. They can't see the truth. You can preach to them, witness to them, talk to them, they can't see it. They just can't because they're veiled. They can't get it. It won't work. But he said, but you, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, which is the word of God, the glory of the Lord are being what? Changed. A good and interesting word. It's the word metamorpho. From that word metamorpho, we get this word in Mark 9, too, about Jesus was transfigured. The disciples saw Jesus transfigured, that is, changed into another form. It's change. Think about change. He said, we all with faces that are not blinded, we're beholding in the word of God, the glory of God. We're being told all about what belongs to us. And as we behold it, the Bible says we are being changed into the same image. How? Verse 18. How are we being changed? By what? By the Spirit of the Lord. Then would you agree with me that, that along with revealing the Word to you, the Holy Spirit comes to alert you, to show you what your need is. You need that. Now, you're down here squalling and crying and you're miserable and you're yapping and, and, nobody, and you're just ugly. Just ugly. With Holy Spirit, if he can get inside of this miserable headpiece of yours, he begins to show you what it could be like. You begin to see who Christ is. Nobody ever saw Christ sit down on a lonely hillside in Galilee. I've been there. He never had sat down with his disciples and he said, boys, I just don't know what to do anymore. It's so hard. Never did that, did he? Never did that. He always knew who he was. And he said, I always do those things my father shows me. And I speak the things I hear from my father. I'm never at a loss for what to say or for what to do. Because I am being shown by my Father the very things the Holy Spirit is wanting to show you. We look into the mirror of the Word. Hopefully we got a Bible. Hopefully we read it. Hopefully as it sits there on our tables, there's some kind of an inward stirring that says, what does that mean? And surely in our busy lives, we can take just a few minutes every day to try to find out what that means. You may not just be able to read this and know where to turn to to read something else about it unless you've got a Bible with a center column. You may even want to buy you a topical Bible or, or something like that, just something that will help you discover more than what you know and something that just inspires you and motivates you to search. Because if the content of this word does not become a picture in your life, something you see with your eyes of your heart, if you don't start getting this picture in your heart, you're going to wander through life with the same questions that most folks have. I wonder why it doesn't work. 
I wonder why we don't have this. I wonder why. I wonder why. I wonder why. And there comes that moment when in your searching and your seeking, the Bible says the Holy Spirit brings you liberty in that as you look into the word and you begin to see Jesus. He said he is the one who begins to change you into the same image. Boy, that scares the daylights out of your neighbor. You don't fight no more. You don't cuss. You're just a different person. Don't we sing a song like that? I'm not the same person that I, uh, that I uh, helped me used to be. We all don't know that song, but there is a song like that. You begin to change. Your wife notices the change. Your husband notices the change because as the Spirit of God gets in control, he brings conviction. And you begin to see your need. And God says, I don't approve of your life as you approve of your life. You're quite happy doing nothing. But let me show you something. And he pulls that veil away from you. I say, now that's the way you are. You're ugly. You're difficult. You're hardly able to be taught because you're so satisfied with enough of my word that you think you have that you aren't looking for more. You're not seeking more. There's no growth in your life. You act the same way the heathens act. You're putting no distinction between right and wrong, good and bad, clean and unclean. You like to watch the same nasty stuff that they watch. There is a need in your life to be changed because God is righteous, isn't he? Does he not have to judge unrighteousness? He does. So he wants to change your life before he has to judge you. Turn to Colossians 1, verse 9. Boy, you guys that are preachers, just work on verse 9 through verse 14. Just work on that. That's a whole month series, preaching three times a week. That's good stuff. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you be filled with what? The knowledge of his will. There's no greater light than a person can have in this life than to know the will of God. And whether you do it or not is another subject, but that's the greatest knowledge you can get is what God wants from you. And he goes on to say, that you might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing. How could you walk worthy of the Lord without the knowledge of his will? How could you? We try to devise study groups so we learn how to walk in God's will without knowledge. You might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And what is the thing here that's going to continue? Increasing in what? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, my need is to know him. Isn't that what Paul said was the most important thing in his life? I think it's in the book of Philippians, maybe chapter 3. He said he had one great desire in this life, and that was to what? To know him. Think of all the things he could have said, but his one major desire in this life, in this life, this was a heady man, wrote half the New Testament. Brilliant. He said, after all these years and all the ups and downs in my life, shipwrecked, snake bitten, run out of town by women, lowered over a wall, stoned. He said, one thing I count more dear to me than anything else, and that's the knowledge of God. I wonder why he would say that. Is there something about the way God puts his word in your heart that brings peace that passes understanding? 
is there something about light that comes from heaven that when you begin to see it like God says it, is there something maybe about that that God puts in your heart in such a way that it relieves you from all your fears, gives you peace and joy, makes you unafraid? Is that true? Could it be true? Well, listen to this. Keep your finger right there. Go back to the left, two books, to Ephesians 1. Just go back to the left, to another old familiar friend of ours. Paul's prayer for the New Testament church in verse 17. He said, I pray for you, just like he did in Colossians 1. He said, I cease not to pray for you. In verse 18, he says what he has prayed for. He says, I pray for you. I pray for you, he said. I pray for you. This is what we need too. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you. You don't have it. You've got to get it. Are you with me? I'm talking to Christians. That he may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation concerning what? The knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding, really it means your heart, the eyes of your heart being enlightened that you may know. And the word know there is a very common Greek word which is also translated to see. It's knowing as though I see it. It's a deeper, fuller knowledge that has a great amount of influence in my life. To know it. And then he goes on to say the riches of his inheritance in the saints. Does it say that? And then he goes on to describe all the things that belong to you and the power that is available to you that he gives to the church. Let me ask you something. If all of this is true, if all of these divine truths are coming to us in the church, then why isn't it working? Why don't we see evidence of it everywhere where there are believers? Because believers don't know this. Most believers, most church members, I did growing up like this. I just took for granted Whatever the preacher says is good enough for me. My daddy told me that once about his priest. said, whatever the priest said is what we believe. So you don't understand Latin anyway. I didn't say that to him. Dominoes and biscuits, you know, whatever they used to say. But there is something about my need to change that is brought about by this work of the Holy Spirit, this spirit of wisdom and revelation, that I would be open to this activity of God that I with my heart would begin to see divine truths I've never seen before it would not dread the cost of living this way and therefore shut the door and say I'm not ready for that but that I would want it and as God begins to show it to me and I begin to see my life I said man I need look at the way I'm living like Bonnie said years ago, we came home from a meeting. This is back in the 60s. And she said, we have been robbed. Because we look at our lives, the way we're living, and the attitudes we have, the belief system that was in our life, and how we saw things and, and walked things and believed things. And then we heard the way it's supposed to be from the Bible standpoint. This is what God says in the Word concerning you and what belongs to you. And we looked at that and I thought, we don't have any of that. We don't live like that. We don't have any faith. 
We don't have any desire to step out and trust God with all of our hearts. We're given to leaning to our own understanding because that's what a natural man does. I can't let go of that. What would people think? I'm a basketball coach. I'm somebody. I'm important. (laughs) I'm not, but at the time I thought I was something else, but I wasn't. But I can say this whenever the truth came. It was such a wonderful, refreshing change of life, new possibilities. I knew when I heard it the first time, this will get me fired. I didn't get fired. This will make me lose a whole lot of friends. I did. This will put my name in a bad light with a lot of people who will never forget it, and it did. It just seemed like God said, how far will you go? And the more you hunger and thirst for it, the more he shows you, and the more you walk into it, and people do reject you. They do think you're some kind of a cult because you want to believe the whole thing. You just want to believe it right. They say, you are weird. We're not weird. We're not weird. We're different. Peculiar. How's that? Peculiar. The world squinches up its nose and says, you are peculiar. We are. Because we found a new way of living. The systems of this world, the natural man, cannot fathom this. Doesn't it say that somewhere in 1 Corinthians? For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. He can't get it. This is why a natural man has no need in his life. This is why, as my experience, you can't teach him. He's got enough of whatever he has, enough to make him happy. He doesn't really need any more. He doesn't see his need for it. He's quite content with birth truths. He's born again, and he knows, woo, he's happy. Now, he wouldn't do that in some places, but he'd go, praise the Lord. And he's happy with the feeling he's got and the smile on his face. And he's happy with what little progress he makes in Sunday school class, and he will make some. God isn't going to leave him destitute. He's going to learn something. Listen to me. I don't mean this wrong. But sometimes a little bit that you get is not enough. Think of this. Remember the verse in Hebrews 5? In verse 11, Paul was talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek, and he said, you know, I want to talk about that because there's some beautiful illustrations here about how Christ is a type of the high priest Melchizedek who had no beginning, no end, so forth. He said, but you know, I can't teach this, for you're not able to receive it. Remember that? He said, I like to teach on this, but he said, I can't because you can't receive it now. Why can't they receive it? Hebrews 5 Verse 12, for the time when you ought to be teachers, you have need again that one teach you which be the first principles of the oracles of God. Is there a time when a teacher could rightly say, is there a time a pastor could rightly say, you're not growing. You don't know much about the word. You're not mastering certain doctrines, learning the meaning of them. You're not putting this word into your life and living like it's true. Because it wouldn't be no good to learn a truth if you didn't live like it's true. That's academics. That's what puffeth upeth, that kind of knowledge. But he said, you're remaining babes. You're not progressing spiritually. And he said, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. 
For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Isn't that something? For he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. That's full stature. That's mature. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern between good and evil. In other words, listen. In some people's lives, there's spiritual activity. Not only is God showing you something, but he's wanting you to come and draw near and taste and see that it's good. Want more of it. Let him begin to effect a change in your life. Making you say, you know, I want to be like Jesus in dealing with people. I want to be like Jesus in overcoming. I want to be like Jesus to my wife. She deserves that. Instead of me being an ugly thing. I want to have these graces that come from him. I think it's the Holy Spirit who, isn't he the one who gives us his fruit? Love, gentleness, meekness. Isn't this what should be seen? This fruit? The change? The evidence of growth is fruit. You begin to have this need. And when you begin to partake of spiritual truths, again, I can only say it the way I know it, as you taste and see, as you're willing to step out and not fear the consequences that will come in your life, the change. You'll never change until you take a step. You can't fear what you're going to lose because you may need to lose what you're going to lose. You can't fear what's going to happen to you because something will happen to you. God isn't going to send you somewhere you just fall flat and die. That's not his plan. But he will give you a chance to quit. And to draw back, he'll give you a chance to do that. He'll give you a chance to see it man's way and not God's way because he said that's a sign of the end. Have the itching ears. They turn aside from the word of God and they turn aside the fables. Isn't that right? It is. And he'll do that. He'll allow that to come into your life and confront you. But if you get a taste of this thing, as some do, I've known too many people in my life that when they got this, they never looked back. You didn't have to counsel them twice a month. You didn't have to pray for them all the time. They just got it and go. You know they go through some things, and as you watch their life, you get encouraged because they just cast it all over on the Lord, and he takes care of them. He brings them out, and you get, praise God. I see it working. Somebody is growing. They're not crybabies. They're not whining all the time. They're not looking. They're not doing that anymore. They're not on the phone. Mabel, come over here and help me. I don't feel good. They don't do that. They learn how to go to the Lord and go to their source. I cast all my cares upon him. I lay all of my burdens down at his feet. And anytime I don't know what to do, I cast all my care on you. You got to learn that somewhere. You can be told that, but you can never learn and never come to the knowledge of the truth either. But somebody's got to teach us. Nobody will ever learn you. You like that? Nobody's ever going to learn you anything until you have a need for it. Again, there's too many people that have it the way they want it. They don't want it any other way. They don't want to learn anymore. They have all that they have. But those quiet moments, whether in church or at home, riding in the car, whenever it happens, when God begins to speak to you and begins to reveal to you what your need is, 
you know, you could do better than you're doing. You're like Martha in the Bible. You're flustered in your unchristlike condition. Now you're, you're flustered about so many things. You just don't know what you're going to do. I just don't think that's right. I'll tell you one thing. I'd, I'd hit him in the mouth. You're missing the whole point. We're not living that way anymore. Everything's changing now. We're new creatures in Christ. God, don't leave us alone anytime we meet. Deal with us. Prompt us. Convict us. Stir us up, Lord. Make us to see what you're saying, Lord. Give us that hunger. See, hunger itself is a need. You're never going to seek to be fed until you realize that you're hungry. We're better than nobody. Everybody I know is better than me. We are what we are because of God. If we are anything good, it is because the goodness of God has made it good. Because all of our efforts at being somebody has made us bad. Because your righteousness are as, that's an ugly word, but it's filthy rags. So we begin to quit trying to impress the world, show people how spiritual we are. We begin that quiet walk with God where we want to learn about his word, take a little time every day, maybe a quiet hour, a family hour, maybe a time when dad, if he's gone, mom will sit down with the family and just read something like Colossians 1 and discuss it with your own limited understanding of it. It doesn't matter. God can take a little of nothing and make a whole bunch out of it. Can he work miracles? We work miracles all the time. People work miracles every day. Non-Christians work miracles. They make mountains out of mohills every day. Show me my need, Lord, because if I don't see it and I draw back and I become satisfied, not content, but satisfied with what little bit I have that is religious, let me tell you what I lose. Let me just tell you how God describes me there. Turn to Ephesians 4, where we started, and just look at verse 18. Whew, what a verse. Well, I could say in verse 17, quit trying to pattern yourself like the world. Quit trying to be something that the world approves of and compliments. That's vain. Verse 18, for those people that do that, he said, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, through what? Through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. What a difficult saying, but what a fundamental truth. They're blind, they don't have to be. They're ignorant, that doesn't mean dumb, it just means that they have no light. They don't know. Some people don't know because of their circumstances. Some people don't know because they don't want to know. But he said, they are blind. The ignorance that is in them has caused them to be alienated and cut off from God. It may look godly. It may sound godly. It may have the name of God written in it. But if it's not promoting us to being like Christ, 
if there's not something drawing us to this place in Jesus, this heavenly journey that we're supposed to take, if it's not an upward battle from glory to glory to glory, if it's not old things are passing away and all things becoming new, what then is it? How will God define that? If it's not scriptural and spiritual, if it's just a form of godliness without any power, what do you do with it? He said you're alienated from the life of God because when there's life in God, that stuff won't work anymore. You know why you came here, most of you? There's not even a handful of you from Shelbyville. You know that? Some came from Boston. Used to be here from all over the country. South, north, east, and west. You know why you left the place you were in? Because it wasn't getting the job done. You wanted more. You wanted more. Well, what you found here wasn't some <laughs> thing that everybody was glowing about. Wow, look at that concrete building. Wow, look at that parking lot. Isn't that amazing? Look at that color of that mud out there. I suppose there was a hunger in your life. And God brought us all here. Me, you, he brought us here. Not to attend occasionally, but to take opportunity every time a door opens to be there. Because there was one need in my life. It's the one need that Jesus said was necessary. You know what it is? Martha, Martha, thou art encumbered about with so much stuff. In Luke 10, the end of the chapter, he said, but Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken from her. Do you remember that? And he prefaced that by saying only one thing is necessary. What was it? It was Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus watching the latest video of a rap session, a Christian crowd somewhere. No. None of that. Sitting at the feet of Jesus and he was simply talking about who he was and what belongs to him. And she wasn't going to cook anything. She sat there ready to go. Listen, I need to hear this. If he's in my house talking, you can be sure he's not going to get anything to eat. Because <laughs> I'm going to listen to this word. And Jesus said only one thing is necessary and that's what she chose. Now there's more. Bow your head. We'll get it next time. Father, in Jesus' name, minister to us, O Lord. Open our eyes, as the psalmist said, and show us great and mighty things. Teach us your way, O Lord, so that we can walk in your truth. I pray tonight, Lord, that we will experience here that as we behold in your word the glorious presence of Jesus Christ, the one we aspire to be like, as we begin to see that and get fixed upon that, that we will begin to experience that work of the Holy Spirit in making us Christ-like people so that we overcome our problems. We try up daily in Christ over all the stuff around us. That's something only you can do, and we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.